I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 34 to 38 of Mark chapter 8. So let me read for us the passage. And calling the crowd to him, that is Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, we just lift up this time now as we look to your word. And Lord, we know that what Jesus says here is very hard. And yet it is the call upon every Christian who dare bear the name of Jesus. And so help us, Lord. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the character uh, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor. He was also a professor. And what he's most known for, which probably isn't actually the most important thing about him, was his opposition to Adolf Hitler during Hitler's reign. His opposition led him to help some of the people who were defying Hitler. Um, He was kind of an information person spreading information in order to get Hitler to a place where they were able to remove him from leadership. And uh, he, in the end, was arrested. And just before the war ended, just before the Nazis surrendered, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was taken out and shot to death for his defiance of Hitler, which he believed was a response to his Christian faith. He believed it was his duty to respond to what Hitler was doing to the people of Germany, to the world, and especially to the Jewish people. Now, in Germany at that time, during Hitler's reign, there was what you could call two churches. And what that meant was, is there was one German church, but the German church became the Reich Church. That is, many churches in Germany gave their allegiance to Hitler. They compromised. They even created a New Testament that was the Aryan New Testament. Jesus was no longer Jewish, but he was Aryan. But there were also many churches that refused to compromise, that refused to go along with Hitler and the Nazis. And this was the confessing church of which Bonhoeffer was a part of. And he was one of the leading voices in it. Bonhoeffer was deeply concerned. He was deeply concerned that the church in Germany was indifferent and inactive in regards to what the Nazis were doing. And so he wrote a book called 
discipleship, which many of us know is called, the, the, or as we know it, the cost of discipleship. He was concerned that the doctrine, justification by faith alone, had created in Germany, or it was retooled to justify inaction and indifference. Now, he believed in the doctrine. He believed that we were made right before God by faith alone, through grace alone. But he was concerned that in Germany, that doctrine led Christians to be indifferent to the injustices that they were seeing at the hands of the Nazis. And so he wrote this book, The Cost of Discipleship. And his main concern was this idea that he coined cheap grace. Cheap grace, easy believism. All you have to do is just profess faith in Jesus Christ and that's all you need to do in order to be right with God and and end up in being with him in heaven. And he called that cheap grace. And this is what he wrote about cheap grace. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of the community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. It is the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all that he has. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear out your eye if it causes you to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Cheap grace still plagues the church today. I think there will be more people who will face God's judgment for embracing cheap grace than embracing works righteousness. And here in this passage, in Mark chapter 8, we are reminded that Christ is not for cheap grace that his grace is costly, that it requires a radical response to him, that he demands everything from us because he is Lord. And so we saw Peter and the disciples last week make this true confession. Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, speaking on behalf of the disciples, said, you are the Christ. He declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God. But as we saw, Peter needed to still have a a fuller understanding of the Messiah, who the Messiah would be, what he would do. And so Jesus taught them that the Messiah, the Christ, would be rejected by the religious leaders. He would suffer and he would die. He would be a suffering Messiah, a Messiah who would suffer and taste death. And of course, Peter was offended by this. Peter wanted a Messiah, a a, a kingly ruler who who would come and defeat the enemies of Israel. There's no way my Messiah would suffer and die. The Messiah I believe in is strong, powerful, glorious, and kingly. And so he rebuked Jesus. And Jesus, of course, rebuked him back and said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. 
And it's at this point where Jesus begins to teach his disciples and also the crowd on what it means to follow the suffering Messiah. You see, Peter and the disciples, they needed to learn not only that the Messiah is going to suffer, but that anyone who dare claims to be a follower of the Messiah must be willing to walk the same path of humiliation that the Messiah will walk. See, if your Savior will walk the path of self-denial and suffering, then his followers ought not expect a bed of roses, but a cross. And so in verses 34 to 38, Jesus speaks to the crowd and his disciples on what it truly means to be, to follow and live for Jesus. And in verse 34, we specifically see this radical call that Jesus makes. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We're being summoned by Jesus. If we claim to bear his name, we also must be willing to bear his cross. Now there's several things we need to see in this verse. The first is this. Being with Jesus... Following Jesus is the aim. That's what he says. If anyone would come after me, if you want to be with me, if you want to follow me, if you want to be near me, have fellowship with me, if you want me, then you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. In other words, this isn't about bearing a cross for the sake of bearing a cross. The question isn't about, are you willing to bear a cross? The the question is, how much do you long to be with Jesus? See, it's not about whether you will deny yourself and take up your cross. The question is, how badly do you want to be with him? Your desire to be with Jesus will determine whether or not you're willing to bear the cross. But the reason Jesus says this is because he is on the path that leads to the cross. Which means if, if, if you want to come after him, as he says, if you want to be with him, you have to enter that same path and follow it to its end where he will be. He is going towards Calvary. He is going towards the cross, which means if you want to come after me, then you have to be willing to go towards Calvary as well. So being with Jesus, following Jesus, is the aim. Secondly, self-denial and bearing your cross are essential to following Jesus. You cannot have Jesus if you're unwilling to deny yourself and to bear your cross. Now, so what does Jesus mean then by denying ourselves and taking up our cross? What what does he mean when he says deny yourself? Well, what is self-denial? Well, self-denial is extensive. It's to resist or deny our natural inclinations. It's to do away with the sinful desires of the flesh, all that is contrary to God's holy will. It's to live and believe that self is not the Lord of one's life, but Christ. Christ sits on the throne of your life, not self. As one commentator puts it, 
The central thought in self-denial is a disowning of any claim that may be urged by the self. A sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to be able to say yes to God. This involves a radical denunciation of all self-idolatry and of every attempt to establish one's own life in accordance with the dictates of the self. Now we have to understand just how countercultural this is to our modern secular culture, our modern secular narrative. The secular narrative of today isn't self-denial, but self-fulfillment. And you shouldn't allow anything or anyone from getting in the way of your pursuit of self-fulfillment. Pursue your dreams, your goals, your desires. Be true to yourself. Go and find yourself. That's what life is all about. You need to love yourself more. The amount of books on self-help and self-love and self-fulfillment. See, many in our culture would say that the problem with most of us is that we don't love ourselves enough. If we just had a little more self-love, we'd be better off. Our problem isn't that we don't love ourselves enough. Our problem is that we love ourselves way too much. See, the issues in my marriage isn't due to me not loving myself enough. The issues that I face in my marriage is due to the fact that I often love myself way too much at the expense of my wife. See, we live in a culture that worships at the shrine of self-fulfillment and self-love. Whereas Jesus and his gospel calls us to self-denial. To be a follower of Jesus means that you no longer believe that you're the master of your life. It means your life isn't your own, but is under the lordship of Jesus. It's no longer your will, but Christ's will. It's no longer your desires, but Christ's desires. It's no longer your purposes, but Christ's purposes. Christ and his ways become your life. And this is why self-denial is essential to following Jesus. But it's not just self-denial. It's not just denying yourself. It's also both death figuratively and literally. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now we can only imagine how utterly ridiculous this would have sounded to Jesus' Jewish audience. The cross, the crucifixion, was a horrifying punishment for the worst of criminals carried about, carried about by the Romans. And, and Jesus telling those around him that you must be willing to bear this symbol of torture and death would have been utterly shocking to those Jewish ears. What, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, it's simply this. If you're going to follow me, you must be willing to count the cost. 
You must be willing to follow the path that I've taken, which is the Calvary Road. It's the road to Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, the place where I will be crucified. It's the road of suffering and even death. In order for you to follow me, you must die, Jesus says. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, you must take up your cross daily. That is, every day you need to die to self in order to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Why? Because you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both Jesus and self. Either Jesus is Lord or you are Lord. See, Jesus is saying to follow me, to be one of my disciples means you are willing to count the cost and even die for Jesus. Now, I want to be clear. This isn't a works salvation. Our bearing the cross is not the means by which we gain salvation. Christ has already borne that cross for us when he died for our sins. But our bearing the cross is a means by which we show our devotion. And I would argue that you cannot be a born-again, regenerate child of God if you are unwilling to bear the cross. Christ bore the cross of salvation that we might bear the cross of devotion. Jesus is telling us, friends, that there is something greater than yourself worth living for and dying for. And it's Him and His will. So what might taking up your cross look like today? Well, let me give you an example from the past, which I think is actually timely for our context today. Rodney Stark, who's a a sociologist and a historian, he's not a Christian, but he wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity. And in it, he looks at the reasons why Christianity spread so rapidly from the first to the fourth century in the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons he argues was due to the incredible mercy and compassion shown by Christians during horrific plagues in the Roman world that killed up to a quarter, possibly a third of the population. See, when when pagan people had, had family members showing symptoms, most historians think it was smallpox, but we're not totally sure, showing symptoms, they would actually kick those family members out of the house onto the street where already so many corpses were piled up. Pagan family members would abandon pagan family members and friends. Many of the pagan rich fled out of the cities to their estates to escape the plague and death. But what was the Christian response to these plagues? Well, not only did they care for their own at risk to themselves, but they also often cared for the sick pagans who had been abandoned by their own people. And they did all of this knowing that there was major risk to their own lives. But for the early Christians, they understood this was what it meant to deny oneself and take up one's cross and follow Jesus. They were willing to die for the sake of loving and caring for the sick. They counted the costs. But taking up your cross 
is more than just physical suffering and death. It is that, but it's more than that. It's more than just a willingness to die. It's also a willingness to identify with Jesus in his humiliation and shame. You see, the cross was a symbol of humiliation and shame. The cross wasn't just meant to kill people. The cross was meant to shame people and humiliate people before their death. You would be hung up on a tree in the public completely naked where people would mock you and spit at you. They were trying to humiliate and shame any criminal that was hung on a cross. So when Jesus says to take up your cross, he's not just saying suffer and die. He's also saying Will you share in my humiliation? Will you share in my shame? Are you willing to be identified with me in such a way that you will be humiliated and shamed for it and possibly even suffer and die for it? That's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. So this is the radical call from Jesus Christ. For every person who claims to bear his name, we're called to deny ourselves and bear our cross and follow him. And the radicalness of this call, I think, is going to become more and more real for us Christians living in North America. The reality is this, being a Christian in Canada, we most likely, for a very long time, will never face death or anything of that sort. Most Christians in the world do. Christians in North Korea and in Iran, they are killed for following Jesus Christ. They are imprisoned for following Jesus Christ. Most of us will never experience that. So what does bearing our cross look like in Canada? Well, I think, though we probably will not be arrested or die for following Jesus, at least not anytime soon, To follow Jesus today in Canada means that we will be humiliated and shamed. To value what Jesus values, to stand upon what Jesus teaches, to proclaim what Jesus proclaims, to to hold faithful to God's word means in our culture that you will be shamed and humiliated. You will be called intolerant. You will be called bigoted. It's possible that there will be jobs that you will not be able to get as a Christian because of your commitment to the biblical, traditional sexual ethics that the Bible teaches. You think of Trinity Western that wanted to start a law school. And they were not allowed to start a law school due to the fact that the school has a sexual ethic code that is bound to God's word. You think of doctors who are Christians who do not want to practice youth in Asia. And there is greater pressure upon them to either practice it or to give recommendation for those who would want to take their lives. There is going to be more and more pressure where Christians are going to be pushed out of the marketplace. We will be shamed. We will be humiliated. And each of us are probably going to be placed in circumstances where we will have to decide whether or not the honor and worth of Jesus is more precious to us than our own well-being, than our own reputations, 
Will you count the cost? So Jesus declares this call, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you would come after me, do this. And then in verses 35 to 37, he gives us an explanation for why one should do so. And to summarize, he's, he's basically saying that it's the best thing for you to do. It's in your best interest to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Here's why you should deny yourself and take up your cross. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because if you're committed to saving your life, you're actually going to lose your life. But if you're committed to losing your life for my sake and the gospels, you will save it. You will find it. Whoever is devoted to saving their own lives, living for self, will ultimately lose self. Those who are ultimately committed to living for self will die. But for those who are willing to lose their lives, for for my sake in the gospel, they are the ones who will actually, in the end, find life. They are the ones who will actually, hear this, find true self-fulfillment. They will live. Those who die for me will actually live. Those who live for themselves will actually die. Now this only makes sense if there's such thing as resurrection life and eternal life. The only way you can live if you die is if there is life after death. See, Christianity has always taught that this life is not the only life. Jesus taught that there was such a thing as eternal life, as resurrection life, and he himself demonstrated this when he rose from the dead. And the only reasonable reason to take up your cross and die is if there is sure hope of life after death. Now, I want you to see what Jesus is doing here in verses 30, verse 35. He's motivating his listeners with his reward, with reward. Take up your cross, follow me, be willing to suffer and die, for if you do, you will actually live. He's motivating us with reward. You see, Jesus doesn't call us to self-denial and bearing our cross as an end in itself. He calls us to those things in order that we might find true everlasting life. He calls us to these things in order that we might obtain something so much greater than this current life. The Christian call to cross-bearing doesn't end in death but life. And we see this most clearly in Jesus himself. Jesus took up his cross, suffered and died, and then he rose to life. You see, the cross precedes resurrection. And the Christian is called to follow the same pattern. We are to imitate our Savior. And in so doing, we will die, but we will also rise. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul states in Romans 8, 16 to 17, where he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What an incredible truth. If we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are heirs of God and therefore we are fellow heirs of Christ. But then Paul adds this, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. We are heirs with Christ provided that we are willing to suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or you could say it like this, provided that we die with him in order that we might live with him. You see, if you're committed to living only for this life and only living ultimately for self, then in the end, all you will know is death. But if you're committed to dying for Jesus' sake and the gospel, then in the end, all you will know is life. And if you really believe this, it will empower you, enable you to live lives of sacrifice in this life, knowing that death is only the doorway to true life. It's only when we understand that death leads to life will we be willing to bear the cross. I think Hebrews 10, 32 to 35 illustrates this so powerfully. The writer of Hebrews is, is writing to these Christians and, and they are, are believers who, are, who have faced some kind of persecution and affliction. And he says this in verse 32, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, that is after you, you came to salvation, he says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So, so you came to faith in Jesus Christ and, and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And then he explains in verse 33 what this hard struggle with sufferings was. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, being humiliated, being shamed, and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. So sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and other times you actually were partners with those brothers and sisters who were treated that way. And then in verse 34, he explains how they partnered with those who were treated wrongly. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So here's the situation. Some of you have been thrown in prison for your faith. Some of us are at home in safety and security. And there's a decision that you have to make. You can either stay home, feel safe and secure, no one's going to harm you, or... You can have compassion on your brothers and sisters who are in prison. But when you do that, it's going to expose you. It's going to reveal to those prison guards that you are a follower of Jesus. Which means there is potential that you too will be thrown in prison. So these believers, they know this. Some of those believers are in prison and we're told they chose, instead of safety and security, they chose to have compassion on those in prison. And what was the result? Their property property was plundered. But this is what the writer says. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. 
They happily allowed their property to be plundered so that they could have compassion on their brothers and sisters in prison. Why? Look at what he says. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew that they had a better possession. That better possession in Hebrews is all about the heavenly city. They knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. That is one that never ends. It's eternal. In other words, eternal life, the promise of eternal life, enabled them, empowered them to have compassion on their brothers and sisters in prison, and they joyfully accepted the destruction of their own property. How many of us are willing to lose our homes if it would mean having compassion on our fellow brothers and sisters, knowing that we have an eternal possession that is far more glorious than anything this world could ever offer us. And so Jesus gives his reasoning for why we should deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. And then he he gives further reasoning, but he asks it in two questions. And these questions are meant to, ref- meant, us, meant to cause us to reflect on what is most valuable in life. Look at verse 36 to 37. For what does it profit a man? What does it profit a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul or her soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now, of course, the, the answer to both of these questions is clear. There is no profit in gaining the whole world, but damning your soul. Because you only live for this life and not the life to come. There is nothing that a man can give in return for his soul. There is not enough riches in this world that can come close to the worth of one's soul. What does it profit a man to live his whole life in the pursuit of self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, worldly glory, but in so doing, he forfeits the most important thing about him, which is his soul. If you live only for the glory of this life, you will lose what is most sacred about you, both in this life and the next, your immortal soul. Listen to Calvin's words on these verses Christ reminds them that the soul of man was not created merely to enjoy the world for a few days, but to obtain at length its immortality in heaven. What carelessness and what brutal stupidity is this, that men are so strongly attached to the world and so much occupied with its affairs as not to consider why they were born. And that God gave them an immortal soul in order that when the course of earthly life was finished, they might live eternally in heaven. And indeed, it is universally acknowledged that the soul is of higher value than all the riches and enjoyments of the world. But yet men are so blinded by carnal views that they knowingly and willfully abandon their souls to destruction. That the world may not fascinate us by its allurements, let us remember the surpassing worth of our soul. For if this be seriously considered, it will easily dispel the vain imaginations of earthly happiness. 
Living for the glory of this life, friends, will only end in death and the destruction of your soul. Living and dying for Jesus in this life will end in life and the deliverance of your soul. Now in verse 38, Jesus ends with a warning. A warning to his hearers. And it's a warning also for each of us as well. Look at what he says in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There is growing reason to be ashamed of Jesus and his words today. Our society more and more finds Jesus and his words to be offensive and even immoral. And there will be temptation to compromise. There will be temptation for each of us to be ashamed of Jesus. But Jesus warns us here that if we're ashamed of him now, so he will be ashamed of us at his return. When he returns in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. When he comes to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. And each of us must decide, will the fear of man control us or the fear of God? Are we willing to be humiliated and bear the shame that Christ bore in order that we might also share in the glory of Christ when he returns? Or will we compromise and be ashamed of Christ and in so doing forfeit the approval of the glorified King? Brothers and sisters, this is the call of Jesus upon our lives. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, be humiliated, shamed, and even die, knowing that if we die for the sake of Christ, we will live. But the question ultimately comes down to the question that I asked at the beginning. How much is Jesus worth to you? Will you be ashamed of him or will your love for him enable you to follow him to the cross where there is only pain, suffering and death, knowing that in the end you will live? I end by reading this exhortation from Hebrews 13, 12 to 14. The writer of Hebrews is speaking about the sacrificial system and, he, and he's speaking about how the, the carcasses of the animals that were sacrificed would be taken outside the camp where they would be burned. They would be taken outside the, the community camp, the, the covenant community of Israel where they would be burned. And he, and he makes a parallel between those sacrifices being taken outside the camp to be burned. He makes this parallel between that and Jesus being take, taken outside of the gate in Jerusalem where he is taken to Golgotha and he is crucified on the cross where he is burned. And this is what the writer says. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Christ went to the cross. Christ was crucified on that cross in order to sanctify, that is make holy those whom he died for through his own blood. 
And then he says this, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let us go to Christ, the one who was crucified. Let us go to the one who was hanging on the tree and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for all the times that we have avoided the cross. Help us, Lord. Give us a deep hunger and longing to go where Jesus is, to bear the shame that he bore, the suffering and humiliation, in order that he might be glorified in our lives and that we might be with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.